Hi, I'm Sean O. McCarthy, founding editor of the Comics Comic. Found wherever you can type the Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people's dreams to adult people living those dreams, or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. Discussions of racial representation and on-screen depiction of the police both hit home for Carlos Alazraki. Born to Argentinian parents, Carlos has spent the most time on screen as Deputy James Garcia on Reno 911, which aired from 2003 to 2009 on Comedy Central, spawned a movie in 2007, and has returned to mobile phones courtesy of Quibi in 2020. You may recognize his voice from a multitude of animated tunes over the past three decades, starting with Rocco's Modern Life on Nickelodeon, and including Family Guy, The Fairly Odd Parents, SpongeBob SquarePants, The Adventures of Puss in Boots, Camp Lazio, and many, many more. He won the San Francisco Comedy Competition in 1993, defeating fellow finalists Mark Marin and Patton Oswalt, and gained even more notoriety in the late 1990s for voicing the Chihuahua in Taco Bell's radio and TV commercials. We talk about all of that, plus how he continues working during the COVID-19 pandemic, and how he navigates debates about race and culture. So let's get to it! So, Carlos Alzraki, last things first, uh, let's start with the hard-hitting question. When you sure. watch on Quibi, are you a vertical or a horizontal watcher? I tell you what, I watch a lot of Quibi. <laughs> but I am... You're the one. Let me see. I'm a, ver- I'm a, I'm a landscape horizontal watcher and, because it, I, I never go out of the two-shot or the wide shot. It just is not worth it to me. So that sort of, I would call it a gimmick, was lost on me. But I watch, I watch a lot. I got it for Reno 911, and we were able to get it for free for three months. And I, there's a lot of great stuff on there. And there's a lot of things I can watch with my, with my daughter. Uh, Iron Sharpens Iron is a series where athletes from disparate sports share their training methods. So last week it was uh, Amanda Nunez versus Carly Lloyd, or last night's episode. Okay. Uh, it was Sloan Stevens and Justin Turner from the Dodgers, tennis and baseball. And they share each other's training techniques. And that's fun. That's a family thing. There's another one called Prodigy, which chronicles how young athletes have worked hard to make it to where they are now. Uh, and then there was another one called Thanks a Million, where 10 celebrities donated $100,000 to somebody that, that was an influence in their life with the catch that they donate half that to somebody that was an influence in their lives, and then that that person donated $25,000 to the next person. And it's kind of neat. It's a feel-good story. I cry. People don't expect it. They set it up well. So I watched uh, Free Rajon Free with uh, Lawrence uh, Fishburne. I've watched uh, The Most Dangerous Game with Liam. I've watched a lot, and I really like it. You have watched I a really lot of Quibi. Here's how it works for me is that my wife and I will watch, uh, we just finished Friday Night Lights, for example, and then we'll watch an episode of Alone on Netflix. Mm-hmm. And if I feel like I want to stay up and I'm already in bed, then I take my headphones, plug it in the phone. I'm like, let me watch three Quibi episodes on Blackballed, which is the story of uh, Donald Sterling and the Clippers during the 2016 playoffs and, and all that. And I'm like, I can watch three seven-minute episodes and feel like I've accomplished something, you know? So, Yes. I'm a horizontal quivy advocate. And I would agree with horizontal for the reason you, you said up, up top, which is you get to see everybody else who's in the scene, whereas the vertical is just focusing on who, whoever's talking. 
so, that's for an editor it seems like like yeah. okay good i want to see how my single looks um, <laughs> so when they when they called you back in for reno 911 i know i watched a video you had posted a couple years ago where you still had your your uniform yeah was did they give you a new uniform or did they expect you to still wear the old one i would say it was about 4 years ago maybe 5 that the, the sheriff in torrance mm -hmm. uh, that we knew um, during our shooting was running for election in that county. And we decided to get our uniforms back from the wardrobe person, Marianne at the time, and go down and shoot some fun stuff in Torrance to support said candidate. And they said, just keep them. And so I've kept the uniforms ever since. And, um, you know, whenever I need to make a fun video or say, say somebody wants a really nice cameo or I do some TikToks, I did a TikTok with my daughter uh, I'll throw on the uniform and have some fun with it. Back in the day, and it's on my website and on my Instagram, I skydived uh, when I was a skydiver. I, I put the Garcia uniform on. I put an extra super glue on my thing. I made sure I had my glasses on with a, with a holster or whatever and uh, jumped out of a plane in my uniform. So I haven't scuba dived with it, though. So. When, when, when you actually got the call, though, I guess this must have been last year, in 2019 that you would have gotten the call that the reboot was actually happening? Yeah, around November, we started talking about it. You know, and even before then, there was talk of Netflix. There was, uh, I guess, trouble negotiating with Comedy Central and Netflix. So it went away. And then around November, they said, yeah, you know, we're going to make this for something called Quibi. We had a Christmas dinner. And, and then a couple weeks later, uh, end of January, mid-February, we started shooting. February 8th, we started shooting and finished February 28th. So yeah, that was, that was how we were informed. So you just got in under the wire for quarantining in the pandemic. Yeah. Did, does it seem, does it seem crazy or, or, or um, crazy as in a coincidence or crazy as in unbelievably lucky to be coming out with new Reno 911 at a time like now and we're all re-talking about police? Yeah, it, it, it was already part of the zeitgeist, right? Because right. if we were going to come back with a show about cops and thus in the episodes, they nailed it on the head. Let's have the department find an unarmed white guy to shoot. That's one of the episodes, right? So we can't steer away from the fact that people have a different view of cops. But through the lens of us being the buffoons, mm -hmm. it makes it palatable to say, oh, yeah, these cops are doofuses and they do stupid things. They're the joke. But at the same time, you have a lot of, I just did a cameo where a guy that was in charge of graveyard sort of sheriff security just said, we love you guys. And it is always the case where police departments really loved what we did. So that never wavered. It was how I think, the people that weren't on the law enforcement end of things were going to view us. And so that's why we hit the nail on the head. It's like, let's go after it. You know, one of the first sketches, Cedric, like there's, there's black babies in the pool. Oh, what are they? What, oh, what are the black babies doing? Uh, uh, they're drowning. Oh, right. we'll save the black babies. You know? Um, so yeah, uh, issues of race and how police behave, they had to be met head on. And I think Tom and Ben and, and Carrie in writing those things, we're very clever about it. We're very smart about it. Gary, the proud boy, comes back. He, he was no longer a clown, clansman. Mm -hmm. He's, I guess you would say, progressed <laughs> to being a proud boy. And he's dressing neatly. And he's not wearing the, 
but he's the guy that's agreeing to the fact that we're going to shoot him, you know? Right. Even the scales and calm everything down. And then obviously that preceded George Floyd and everything else. I don't know. Had we tried to do it after George Floyd and all these protests, it may not work. It may be too sensitive. Right. So that's what, that's what uh, you're, we're hearing from Brooklyn 999 is they scrapped all of the episodes that they'd written for their new season and are going to start from scratch. Yeah. You know, uh, it, it's tough. You, we all want to listen and be sensitive to things and uh, hopefully not at the risk of creativity that sometimes pushes the envelope because I think if you want to call it art, and I think it is, sometimes it, it's an expression of what's happening and sometimes that's okay provided it's uh, done respectfully. So I don't think we need to abandon all forms of comedy that uh, might tackle race or crime or or serious issues because that that's what satire is. You have to lampoon it. I mean, SNL always did that. To some respects, Monty Python was always making fun of social class and the queen. And we're not there yet. Maybe the wound is too fresh, but maybe we will get back to a time where, you know, you could do things that, that push the envelope a little bit. But if the time now is asking that we don't, that's fine. But there's other things to write about. Well, let's, let's go back in time for a second because one of the, uh, one of the joys of having unlimited uh, self-quarantine time is I can go through Amazon and dig up old clips. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> your, uh, your first, uh, your first uh, credit on Annie's An Evening at the Improv from 1993 is online. That's great. Yeah. Your credit, I, I want to refresh people's memory. When you were first introduced on uh, Evening at the Improv, your, your credits were MTV's Half Hour Comedy Hour, yeah. Comedy on the Road, Star yeah. Search, and yes. two Nickelodeon cartoon, Rocco's Modern Life. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Those were the four biggies. <laughs> you know, um, you saying that makes me realize I started from humble beginnings. You know, I graduated college at Sac State at the time I had done some stand-up and and some mime and then did a duo in Sacramento some comedy some stand-up and you know uh then I just kept trying it out and yeah I, I started working on the road as a comic and then I booked this little gig in 91 for Rocco's Modern Life and then I just kept adding on from there but I didn't come from a strong theatrical background I was always an athlete I always loved watching Carol Burnett and Bob Newhart and thought somehow I, I would love to do that, but I just don't know how. And then stand-up became the avenue for everything. So, you know, it's fitting that those credits were such. Your comedy on the road was in Acapulco, Mexico oh. with John Biner. I remember that. And, John uh, Biner, he, I remember him. He hosted a, he had a, this sketch comedy thing on Showtime called Bizarre. Yeah. He was that great. Had, that had uh, a Super Dave. Yeah, Super Dave Osborne, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Dave Epstein, Albert yeah. Einstein, Albert yeah. Einstein's brother, yeah. Um, and Star Search, what was your Star Search experience? Do you remember that? It was that? in Florida. Is Star Search International, mm-hmm. and I was a comic. And we went to Disney World, and we filmed the thing, and I went up a guy against Jerry Bednop, who's Trinidadian. Okay. Jerry is a very famous comic. He's been in uh, 40-Year-Old Virgin. And I remember doing my th- thing about I'm Carlos Alzaraki, my first from Argentina. And the joke was, and then Jerry Bednop goes out there with a little hat 
and a red dot walks up to the microphone and bumps into the microphone and goes, oh, there goes my dot. <laughs> and then the wings, I'm like, there goes my $5,000. <laughs> you know, you just, he crushed. I could not compete with that. And uh, that was my experience at Disney World. And I remember, I remember uh, uh, comforting a supermodel who lost in her category. Hmm. And, you know, at that time, when you're so young in your career, you think, that's it. I've lost at something. And so I'm not as good. I'm not valued as much. I, I, I suppose that continues, right? You get nominated for something and you don't win. And, but that was very telling for both of us. But uh, I do remember that. I was single at the time. I'm like, hmm, I get to comfort a supermodel. <laughs> it only worked out as far as me comforting her backstage right. and saying, you'll be all right. But uh, but on the, on the other hand, you did emerge triumphant in the San Francisco comedy competition. Yeah. Which, yeah. Uh, you know, I'm old enough to remember, and I used to live in, in Seattle, so I'm also, I'm old enough to remember when the San Francisco and the Seattle comedy competitions were like the big deal. It really worked. God, it was a lot of great uh, Seattle comics back then at the underground yep. uh, town by Pioneer Square. Um, I would perform there and at the last laugh. But yeah, that year, uh, Rick Kearns, Stephen B., myself, Patton Oswald, and Mark Marin. Yep. And I remember going on WTF, WTF with Mark, and he's like, hey, man, how did, how did you feel about winning that? Because he's like, Mark is super famous. He's interviewed <laughs> Obama, and still that night, I think, sticks. And I'm like, listen, I said, I always thought that you and Patton were better comics than I was. I was just a really good performer. Mm -hmm. But I go, yeah, I think he asked me if I deserved to win that night. I go, yeah, I think I did. I think I really crushed that performance. And it's relative, right? You know, Mark Marin and Patton Oswalt have huge careers. You know, Robin Williams finished second to, I think, a guy named Luke, something Lucas, like a puppeteer, a ventriloquist. So... But there's something about, yeah, winning and losing. But, yeah, that was really cool. And literally, back in the days of answering machines, the night I won, the following morning, I had about 70 messages from agents and managers in Los Angeles. That's how big that competition was back in the day. And I, was, I finally ended up going with Helen Hunt's manager, a woman named Connie Tavel. Okay. And I had William Morris, and I had all the suits, and I did all my showcases. I was the flavor of the month, and after 30 days – they tried fishing, and that was about it. And then uh, I thought, okay, it's over. And then I got the Stephanie Miller show on UPN with Karen Mariama and James Stevens III. And that was my big job. I was on the Warner Brothers lot. And then that ends, and then something else comes along. You know, it's just – but, yeah, 93 was a really special kind of time, though. It was really cool. It feels like there are no comedy – I mean, certainly there are no comedy competitions in 2020 because of the pandemic, but it feels like – this the digital comedy boom that we're in has kind of made the old school stand-up comedy competition go away. Yeah, you might argue, yeah, it's so saturated that they take on less importance. Yeah. Because there's so many great comics. And I believe that the people that started now are so much stronger. They having the they just have the gift of writing better and writing for themselves. You know. Stand-up was still in that wave of 80s, 90s, was still relatively young. And guys like Tom Kenny were, were a great stuff. He was friends with Bobcat Goldthwait, Dana Gould, you know, all these guys from San Francisco, Christopher Titus, Rob Schneider, uh, Michael Pritchard, Jeremy Kramer, Robin was hanging around still. 
Marshall Warfield, just a really, those were ones that really kind of stood out, you know. I'm surprised to hear you say that the the agents and managers who swooped in when you won that competition didn't give you enough time to to really figure out what would work for you. Um, you know, it, it just just the way it was. I think you know it's always been with me that they're, they're trying to capitalize on my having a Latino surname. My parents were from South America, but I look white, so there was really no sort of really specific selling point. I wasn't the Jerry bed knob, you know, I wasn't here. I am the Indian guy in my family, you know, cause I'm American, but my parents are from Argentina, but my name's Carlos. So I think it was really difficult to, for them to find a niche, but I work with Gordon Hunt who at that time was producing uh, family matters and had a, also a follow-up sitcom with Justine Bateman. And they tried to write something there where I was working at a radio station and doing voices and characters and, and we went to Castle Rock with a couple of projects with, with Rob Reiner. And we had our meetings and we had our shots. And I was very green. I don't think I was a very good actor yet. And so things need to be, you know, opportunity is when luck meets preparation, right? So I wasn't totally prepared to make that transition from good comic to good actor. And looking back, had I really strengthened those things, uh, I might have had you know, an easier time of it, but still it's always, you, you, it's a gamble, you know, you have, uh, conversely, you have John Caponera who had his own pilot about the office and Drew Carey was the sidekick. John Caponera was from Chicago and he did a great Harry Carey, a really funny guy. And then Drew goes on to make it, you know, <laughs> or so many comics had their pilot after pilot after pilot after pilot and never got picked up or were on for one season. Mark Curry was a guy won the San Francisco comedy competition, hanging with Mr. Cooper. Right. And that lasted pretty well. But then, you know, everything is all, it's always about sustaining it. You know, you're going to, it's that typical, you know, 15 minutes of fame. And then how do you sustain it? You know, Patton obviously didn't win the competition, but worked to become this really good actor and really good stand up. Mark Marin, I know, went to hosting a podcast and, and got acting parts from that, you know, you never know what your path is going to be. And so that might've been like the most sure pass. Win the competition, get big manager, get big agent, become famous. It's supposed to work that way in a linear fashion. And then showbiz like life, you find out, oh, it's not linear. You know, then I stumble into an audition with Ben, Tom and Carrie, who I've never met. I didn't watch the state. And they say, we like you for this sketch show. We read the sketch show at a table read. We don't want to do a sketch show. Think of something else. We're going to make fun of cops. Think about a character. Never had to audition as Garcia. Just, I got to show up with Beth McCarthy from Saturday Night Live in a warehouse and start making up stuff. They passed on the pilot. Two years later, Comedy Central picked it up. So that is completely dissimilar to how it probably should have gone with the competition. It was just in the right, you know, so did, did to get ahead, but yeah. Did the, did the world of, of voiceover work, even in the nineties present more of a meritocracy than live action work? I would need you to, to define the word meritocracy. <laughs> yeah. I know. Even as it came out of my mouth, I'm like, uh, what, what am I saying? <laughs> I'm not ashamed. Did, did you find it easier to, to get cast in voiceover work? 
Yes. Okay. Because of what uh, the aforementioned subject of Carlos Jaime yeah. Alastraki, All American Boy Award uh, winner in high school. I can do Rocco. I can also do uh, Monroe from Juniper Lee and uh, whatever character. You know, I can do all these characters that will not belie the way I look because it's voiceover. Mm-hmm. So, in that sense, yeah, there's no confusion. You know, people will often, if I go to a con, if they ever come back, hopefully they do. Right. They'll look at my my little banner behind me and go, "Wait a minute, you're Mr. Weed from Family. You're you're the guy from Reno. Holy crap, you're Rocco. You're Mr. Crocker. Yeah, I, I've done all these things. The, just the voiceover part, you never realize because you might have known me just for Reno. So, oh, daughters are coming in with guinea pigs. Ooh. Introducing Coco and Snuggles. <laughs> I'm blacked out. I'm I'm videoed out. Do you, oh do, you provi- do, you pro- do you provide the voices for the guinea pigs, do, or, or is that uh, only the paper, paper voice? Oh, okay, there's my video. Oh, I, didn't, I never unscreened myself. There I am. Oh. But you can see me the whole time. That's Austin and Riley. I, I do not promote, promote – oh, hey, put their castles upside down, uh, right side up so they can hide. And um, I'm going to replenish – we'll replenish the hay afterwards. Yeah, life during COVID. <laughs> and they left the pocket doors open. Uh, yeah, no, no voices for the guinea pigs. They're just like, don't pick me up, please. Leave me alone. Just feed me. Don't handle me. How did how did the uh, Taco Bell gig change your life and career in a way the other gigs didn't? It was so widespread because the other ones were cable, right? Nickelodeon and even Reno was cable. Taco Bell was network all over the place. Not international, just in the States. But it was such, it just landed with such a force. I literally was on Hollywood Squares talking to Sugar Ray Leonard during the break and hearing somebody say Carlos Ellis Rocky for the block. It was so surreal. I'd grown up watching that show. (laughs) Sick from school type of thing. And so, you know, I didn't get to go to the red carpets that the Chihuahua went to, but financially I bought a house and I had all these articles and publications, most good, some bad, but it was just so impactful and so iconoclastic. That and Where's the Beef with Clara Peller. So it was pretty amazing. It really, that elevated or catapulted me more than anything, Rocco or the, or the stand-up competition. It really helped put me on the map. Does um, the pandemic might might not affect you as a voiceover artist as much as it affects other people, right? Because you probably, do you have a, do you have a home setup for? Yeah. For that? I'm ending just before two today to test again with my buddy, Mark Mercado at Salami. I've been working with Nickelodeon, uh, family guy, American dad, and uh, a couple other productions from my booth with just, I already had a whisper booth and I would audition with a little sure microphone on my phone that wasn't connected to anything. And now these engineers are really going out of their way to help actors learn how to use Source Connect now, learn how to use Zoom and connect and adjust your computer, hook up your mics. I spent maybe $1,000 to upgrade my booth uh, using an Apogee hype mic and Shure headphones and a pop screen. And now I'm broadcast worthy. You know, I literally bought two shower curtains and two Fernie pads at U-Haul to really augment my padding 
and now, although the circulation in my booth doesn't work anymore, you know, we'll go out and actually dunk in the pool when we get hot and then come back to record. Now both my daughter, Riley, the older one, mm-hmm. are working. We're working from the booth for Nickelodeon, and uh, I'm doing a production for Apple today from my booth because oh. while some productions are ready to send you back into the studio, there are some productions that say, no, we're not comfortable right now with the protocol uh, at studio, so please, if you can record for home from home, We'd love to do that. And, and I literally bought 300 feet, which is 150 feet too much, of blue Ethernet cable, which I hooked directly into my modem, and I run it through the door like an old Mayberry episode and hook it into my computer via an adapter. And so now I have pure Ethernet. I won't drop out or there'll be less glitches. And so I can record from home and make money. Yeah, it's been really lucky. And you mentioned that uh, you don't have to worry about keeping the daughters away while you're working because you actually put them to work. Yeah, she, she works. Riley works. She had a, I, I bumped her session last week, but yesterday she worked for a couple of hours, and she's been working too, so that's good. Yeah, put them to work. <laughs> do you have, like, pre-pandemic or post-pandemic, do you have a preference between uh, doing your voices alone versus being in the room with the other actors? I always prefer to, if you really are enjoying it, I always prefer to be with the other castmates because you're seeing each other outside the home. It, it was part of the gathering. It's, it's more than just doing voices. You get to see each other. How are you doing? Uh, I miss the cast, for example, of the Casa Grandes. You know, we really are very familial. And uh, I miss those guys. And I do my Casa Grandes from home, and I'm just doing it by myself. It's, it's not the same. I really want to socialize with those guys and be in the booth and have fun and, and watch them work and laugh and eat free food at Nickelodeon and driving on to the Nickelodeon lot and them knowing you. You feel like you're going to work. And so, yeah, with even pre-pandemic and post-pandemic, I feel the same. Although the Nickelodeon lot, I would presume, does not have a swimming pool? Not yet. It does not. <laughs> And now this is uh, a question just that I have as a, as a lay person. How often do you get to see the animation before you provide the voice and how much of it is you're providing the voice animation unseen? Um, there are separate branches of voiceover work. So when we're creating a new character, I'm, I just did, I'm working on Camp Coral mm-hmm. with Tom Kenny as the director. We'll see an animatic and you can either, they'll put it on your computer and you can scan through it and read a whole all the scenes, all animated pencil drawings or whatever, ink drawings so that you know what's going on in the storyboard. Uh, so we see the animatic. Uh, with the Casa Grandes, I have to do ADR, additional dialogue replacement. So they'll have full animation. I'll time it to the beeps, and then I'll get to see it rendered fully. Um, so it, it varies. But usually you're just recording from a script and a storyboard. Which is, which is more fun for you? Is the ADR more fun because then you get to see what it's supposed to look like? Not as fun because you're really <laughs> just matching timing. Okay. And you're not getting to bring anything fresh to it. The take is already there. You're just matching timing. So I enjoy from a just a nothing episode. I got to do a really fun episode coming out of American Dad playing a character that was like, hey, howdy, ma'am. How you doing? Well, I got to tell you what. I don't like the way you're talking to me. And so to be able to create with a director for a first time, that's more fun than going back and going, okay, the sound was off, so let's go back and do all these lines again. You know, like, it's like, ah, okay. It's a job. I love it. I'm lucky. But I like the other part better. 
Right. It seems more like actual work when you're it is trying to time it to a screen capture. Like putting a floor in and then discovering that a lot of the pieces don't match. And you're like, okay, now we got to go back, put these, take this floorboard out, put this one back together, re-glue it. It's like, ah, okay. Now, Carlos, uh, since we're talking this week, it's crazy how, uh, because we're talking now and not last week, so much has changed even just in the discussions about animation. There have been several, <laughs> several shows this week that have announced that their white characters are no longer going to be voicing white actors yeah yeah are no longer going to be providing the voices of of animated characters of color yeah uh how is how is watching this all go down from your perspective uh yeah there's something called uh obviously the show big mouth i think it's all right i think it's wonderful that actors will sort of volunteer that or our productions and nick kroll kind of thought about it and said yeah it, it's time let's the cleveland show obviously came before that but let's do that. Let's let's have black actors portray these characters, you know. Even though it's voiceover, I think it's the right thing to do right now. And again, you know, maybe if, if there's ever a time where the, the, the scales are balanced, then it becomes a moot point. But obviously it's not. Um, it's good to see. It's good to see that people are, are, are doing it when they feel it's voluntary, you know. And uh, I think that I think that helps. I, Cedric and I did a project on YouTube where we had some white actors portraying black actors off a riff. And I talked to Cedric Yarborough about it really recently during the protest. And I go, what do you think about this project if I ever try to pitch it? He's like, yeah, let's, let's revisit it. Like, you don't have to break up the cast, but what about if these guys were white and instead of trying to be black, they were from New Orleans, which is really uh, all his own kind of a weird kind of a vibe. You live to Ed Orgeron, Atlantis, you tiger. Go Tigers. You know, he's got his own kind of thing. And I'm like, yeah, you're right. Let's, let's do that. Let's, let's make this more correct because then it makes the group more dynamic. It's two black folks hanging out with two white folks from New Orleans as opposed to four black folks played by two white actors. And so I like that. I, I, I had the discussion. We really talked about it. And I'm like, yeah, I'm not opposed to making those changes. It's still funny. We still, we, you just adapt, you know. I think, I think it's a good thing. Yeah, it feels like we're at this moment I mean, in the world and in America, but then even just in our own world of comedy show business where we're grappling with the idea of, well, how do we ensure a safer climate? And also, how do we ensure better representation for everybody? I think through, through actual discourse, you know, if you have Chappelle addressing certain things, if you have certain comics getting attacked on Twitter or whatever, if there's actual discourse and people listening, I think that's a better path forward to getting everybody represented fairly. And also having some people say, listen, this might be pushing the envelope for you, but I think you'll be okay. You know, it, it's, it's an expression of art. It's not meant to hurt. And, it, you know, because the cancel culture is obviously something that we have to be careful, especially as a, somebody that's a liberal. I don't want it to push people the other way. And I remember being in a New York speaking engagement with somebody called Sargon. His name is Benjamin or Sebastian. He's a gamer. And okay. the crowd there was a lot of Trumpers, a lot of males. He was famous. He was on Rogan's podcast and he was defending the fact that somebody said there wasn't enough female avatars in games. And he's like, you know, I think that's, I think that's bullshit because if you look at it, you have a chance to choose your own avatar. And, and preceding this dialogue that I was going to have with him, I watched the monk debates 
from Monk University in Toronto with Michael Eric Dyson, Michelle Goldberg, Stephen Fry, one of my heroes from Wooster and Jeeves, and of course, uh, sorry, Laurie, everything, uh, Black Adder, and and uh, Jordan Peterson. Really great debate, really informative, and I really love Stephen Fry. So when I met Sargon backstage, I said, "Oh man, I just wanted to say that I'm pleased to meet you." I'm looking forward to talking tonight, and I have to say I'm a real big fan of Stephen Fry. And he said, oh, shit. I was really hoping to hate you because I love Stephen Fry, and I love where he comes from. And Stephen Fry is a gay man, liberal, atheist, who during the debate was really encouraging because Michael Eric Dyson can get really dogmatic, and Jordan Peterson, and they were fighting each other, and... Stephen Fry says, I learned from a chess master that when you're in a debate, that quite often the best chess move is not often the best chess move. It's making the move that your opponent least wants you to make. So rather parrying and taking something that somebody says when they're expecting an attack to go, oh, I see your point, but let me parse this out a little bit. And so when I went to that discussion, I, I knew all these people were not liking the liberals telling them what to do. So I said, here's how I'm on your side. When I did the Taco Bell Chihuahua, people said it was a hate crime. They were offensive. They were trying to shout me down. And I I said, when I parsed it out, this character of the dog was a cool character. It wasn't saying, I'm sleepy, I'm tired, I want to eat Taco Bell. It was saying, I love Taco Bell. Cute. I think what they were having a problem was was the breed of the dog, a Chihuahua, which probably originated in China and came via Mexico. And that's what we associate. So in my opinion, had it been a Rottweiler, then there's no problem because it doesn't attack the sensibilities of a warrior culture. And so I I told that story. I said, it was hard for me. I was getting hate calls because I was a voice of this dog and because I was Argentinian, not Mexican. Um, So I said, and then after the show, and I said, I don't agree with going full fledged and going the other way but I can see how you're sensitive to it. And a lot of people in Trump hats were saying, hey man, I got pushed the other way. I wanted to be a liberal, but people kept policing my thought. I said, that's not necessarily a cause and effect thing, but if that's the way you went, I can hear you and say, oh, you were feeling pressure. And part of that was because they weren't having discourse. They were just getting attacked. And so this is informing me on how to talk about these issues rather than fight on Twitter even if it's with family members. It's like, <laughs> you know what? Let's couch this email back and forth. Let's have one night where we talk about it. Because I think you feel a certain way. I think I feel a certain way. And we could probably meet on a few things in the middle. So, um, yeah, that's the answer, I guess, to what's going on with how do you react to cancel culture and how do you react to trying to accommodate it? And the, the answer is you're never going to be able to accommodate everybody. You, somebody's always going to feel left out underappreciated you know this these paintings are in this museum and these paintings are in this museum we can't put it all under one roof you know so you know so try to look for i don't know things that 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 move you and and hopefully if you're offended by something or hurt by something try to examine it and try to examine why this really recently came up in a discussion about statues Confederate statues, you know, I really am offended and it's offensive that these statues are coming down. And then I go, well, yeah, I'm not, 
I don't think that destructive reactions are solving um, issues. They, they just feel like this is what I need to do. I need to tear it down. On the one way, I don't feel like that. On the other hand, if a statue comes down, how does it affect me personally? As you know, John Oliver said, statues aren't a reflection of history. They're a glorification of a person beyond what the actual history is. And so that even if a George Washington statue came down or a Jefferson that are, weren't necessarily related to the Confederacy but were slave owners, um, is that the answer to rip them down? I don't know. But if it does come down, it really doesn't affect me. It doesn't erase history. It's just a statue. It's an inanimate object. It's what you think it represents to you. But really in a day-to-day thing, you know, it doesn't really affect me. I, I don't love it. I wish people, instead of ripping things down, would, would actually try to get to a point where we as Americans would agree, and maybe that's not going to happen, that's what they're saying, that we should put these in a museum. Just set these aside. So you go, if you want to learn about Confederate figures, figures, as John Oliver, you could go see them here. We don't need them erected in the 1920s reminding people that. Right, know, in every small town across the South. Yeah. They, they were they were erected as a reminder that hey you're still under our watchful eye and that we haven't forgotten, and so they have that meaning to people. Um, so and then some comedy bits really rub people the wrong way. This really hurts me. Okay, let's talk about it. Let's talk about it. You know, there have been arguments on Twitter that I've stayed out of because there's no there's no win there. It is between the parties that are arguing. And what they need to do is actually get away from social media, come together, talk about it. We'll yeah, I, I like how you, you, brought, you, you brought the issue of statues to you personally. Like these old sitcoms from the 90s or 2000s that are removing episodes because characters had blackface. How does that affect me if that episode is no longer there to watch? Yeah, and I can see how... I think Bill Maher had a great point about white liberals thinking that they, that they can save the day for African-Americans. And he's basically he's like, they don't need you. What, what we, what I think black Americans need is for us to listen, just listen instead of, no, I'll take charge for you. I'll take care of that Karen for you in the parks. <laughs> like, we don't need that. We just want you to know what's going on and let's help us to solve this issue. I, I like that point of view from Bill Maher, but yeah, it, if things, I think HBO is returning uh, Gone with the Wind, I think maybe with a disclaimer that these contain images. But that's where I don't think you need it. It's there for you to watch. If it offends you, don't watch it. This was for a certain time. Um, that, that's kind of the way I feel. But I can also understand if those images hurt you. I don't think they should be erased. I just don't think you should maybe tune in. And maybe it doesn't work for you. So I, I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. But it's obviously more complex. <laughs> yeah, more more complex than a uh, comedian, actor, and a journalist to figure yes. out. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's great because this is the pandemic is like this is where we are now, and uh, I love the fact that the protests because Colin Kaepernick tried with a peaceful protest to get people's attention, as well as Tommy Smith and John Carlos and. Norman Peter from Australia, you know, back in the day in 68. 68 Mexico City, yeah. 
Yeah. And now we're having discussions. And this, evolution is messy. Statues are coming down and people are getting angry. We don't have the right leader in place, for sure. Just think what could happen with somebody that was right there going, I know you're angry. I know you're angry. Let's have a forum about this. And we don't have that. And it's just like, it's like, oh, man. Yeah. So, I, I remember um, 20 years ago, Bill Bradley ran for president. And uh, he challenged Al Gore. And Bill Bradley's main platform was having an honest discussion about race in America. And <laughs> nobody wanted to do that. Yeah, he's an ex-NBA player. You know, he got it. Yeah. He, he saw it from that perspective. Yeah, it's uh, maybe, I think, though, there's been significant change since George Floyd. Already, already. Athletes are stepping up. Dwayne, I don't know if you saw Dwayne Johnson's Instagram. I did. Uh, in the hallway. It's eight minutes. And he's just standing there. Where are you? But our country is on its knees. Where are you? Where's our leader? And it's so almost like a speech from wrestling, but it's, I don't want to say it's ineloquent, but in, in what it lacks in sort of well-written written prose, it is so eloquent because it's gut felt. You have to see it. And four years ago, The Rock wouldn't have done this. And that's what we need. That's the difference. The Lincoln Project with Conway, all these generals, people are saying, okay, we got to get involved. So that's really something special. You should check that out. You'd love it. I will. Thank you so much, Carlos. I really appreciate your time. You're welcome. Thanks. Okay, bye-bye. This episode of the Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was produced by Alex Brazell at Showbiz Studios. The music by Camille Harris and Shockwave, logo by Giggle Chick. Please check out my website, thecomicscomic.com, for more interviews, reviews, and comedy news. Become a paid subscriber at patreon.com. I'm your host, Sean McCarthy. Thanks for listening. Thanks first.